It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, we've been talking through this idea of, or getting into this idea of uh, idols and idolatry and all that kind of stuff. And I mentioned in the last uh, session together that what I want to do is I want to kind of set a standard, if you will, uh, for what God is calling us to so that we can then talk about the fact that we have so often had the tendency to drift from that reality. Uh, so if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at De- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're actually going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, for at least the next few weeks. Uh, <clears throat> again, I wanted to lay a foundation, and in terms of last time we talked about holiness and the fact that God is holy, therefore you are called on to holiness but the only way that you can be holy is that you've got to embrace the one who is holy. Uh, that is a, such a great overview of the concept. But I want to get more specific in these next several sessions and talk what has God called us unto uh, very specifically. Uh, what is the calling in our life biblically? And just as I was mapping out the series, my thought was is it actually would make a lot of sense and it would be kind of fun to walk through Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, at least a few of the verses, what we typically call the Shema. And this is one of those phenomenal statements that was kind of the big anthem uh, of, of Judaism all throughout uh, the history of the Jews, even unto this day. And it's interesting that this is the passage that Jesus would go back and often quote. And so as such, I thought, well, as a summary statement, this could be a great one for us to go through and study. And secretly, I've been wanting to study it in depth for quite some time. So I'm throwing it into the series so I can kind of cheat. <laughs> so you're just being dragged along with me. So thank you for your willingness, even though you're not awake this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, we know that uh, Deuteronomy is a set of sermons that Moses preached right before the Israelites went into the promised land. This is kind of his last exhortation and words uh, it's a lot of recounting of the history of, of Israel. They left Egypt. They're wandering the, the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, God gave them the law. <clears throat> and Moses is recounting a lot of those things and saying, all right, as you head into the land, here are some things to consider. Hey, don't forget this stuff. Hey, this is really, really important. Those kind of things. And <clears throat> in the early part of Deuteronomy, Moses recounts the Ten Commandments and the law of God. But as you come into chapter 6, Chapter 6 becomes a centerpiece, or a, the center, uh, the heart, maybe is a better term, of this entire section. And Moses is giving a declaration of what your life is to be about. And this eventually turned into a prayer. And what I want to do is just read verses 4 and 5 really quick, just to kind of set, this, set the stage. Uh, this is what uh, Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now, that's probably reminiscent. Uh, You have probably heard that at some point. I'm presuming at some point in your life. And traditionally, that is what we call the Shema. And it comes from actually the very first word of verse 4 which in Hebrew is the word Shema, which we'll talk about in just a second. And therefore, this whole thing was called the Shema. 
And it was this idea of, okay, this is what the Lord has called us to. So listen, O Israel, hear this. The Lord is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And what should we do with this God that we call Yahweh? Well, we should love him with everything. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk through uh, this idea of the Shema in a, in a grand sense. I want to talk very specifically about the word Shema. And then over the next couple of sessions together, I want to walk through this idea. What does it mean to actually love God with everything? Because as we begin to talk about this idea of idols, you realize the reason we have a soul drift, the reason we start to drift away from the one that we love the most is because somehow we've gotten distracted from the reality that he is to be the consuming passion of our focus and our love, that we are to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what does that actually mean? And it's interesting as I've been diving into this, uh, it, is, it is a little different than I was expecting. I have grown up hearing this passage. I've grown up saying this passage. I've grown up thinking about this passage. But for whatever reason, this idea of loving God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength, I think I've always missed the undercurrent or the depth of what even that means. Because when I come, again, in my 21st century American thought process, when I hear the word heart, I have a particular perspective of that. When I hear soul, I, oh, I, I have a thought of what that means. Uh, when I hear strength, I know what that means. I, I don't, but uh, I have a thought of what that means. And you, what's interesting is as you begin to get into these things, these are not meaning what you think they mean. There's so much more depth and beauty that I think this potentially could change all of our lives if we fully understand what does it mean to love God with everything. I already mentioned this, but this, this declaration from Moses became the ancient prayer of the Israelites. Uh, this is the prayer that they began to quote every single morning and every single evening. And so when you'd wake up in the morning, you would start your morning with the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Chad, right? You know, you know that one? We'll work on it. But you, you would quote the whole thing in the morning, and then every evening before bed, you would quote it again. And though we can't prove this with absolute certainty... I am quite confident that when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus would have quoted this every morning, every evening, because he grew up in a culture where this was happening, and all the Jews of Jesus' day, this, is, this was the language of the day. Uh, so you would do this every morning and every evening. When you, when you came into the synagogue on Shabbat for the, the time of worship and for the time of exhortation, this is what they would start with. They would quote the Shema. So this was a centerpiece of Israelite culture. Uh, this was a constant reminder that this should be on our hearts and our minds all the time. That this was to always be in front of us. In fact, that is exactly what Moses tells them. Because the very next passage, right after verse 4 and 5, the great Shema, what you have is the reminder of how we are to, to memorize this. And, and listen to what Moses says. He says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them, uh, bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. In other words, you are to always keep this in front of you, that, that this should be the very focus.
focus of your life. Why should this be the very center? Why would this be the focus? And I think a big reason of that is because if I desire to make God first in my life, or as Colossians 1.18 says, that Jesus is to be preeminent, that he is to have first place. If Jesus truly is to be center, if God is to be the focal point of my life, haven't you noticed how easy it is to forget things? We really are dumb, which I think is why God calls us sheep, because sheep are dumb. <laughs> there's, there's an aspect of remembering that actually forces you to recall it and keep it in front of you. I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences where you're like, I will never forget this, ever. And just give it a week or two, and you're like, there was something awesome that happened, and I just can't remember it. Which is why journaling can be helpful. In the Old Testament, they would often build piles of stones where they would actually grab some rocks, put them in a pile, and that way when they came across the pile, they would go, what is that pile? Oh, it's, and then they could recount the story. In other words, you need these triggers, you need these reminders to have and hold the most important things in your life. And so God says, hey, or maybe, maybe I'll say it this way, Moses reminds the Israelites, saying if God is to be the priority of your life, if you are going to love him with everything, then you probably need to remind yourself of that every day. Because it is so easy to be distracted. And by the way, if it was easy to be distracted in their culture, 3,500 years ago, uh, I, I think it may be one degree easier in our culture today with all the dings and beeps and buzzes and all the stuff that we have available to us. So I almost want to argue that if you desire to love God with everything, I don't think it's just going to come naturally. It's not just going to randomly happen in your life because you're like, well, yes, I want to love God with everything. And suddenly you have it. You're going to have to diligently keep him as the focal point of your life. Again, it's that idea of you're out in the ocean and you're not paying attention. It's so easy to drift. And with all of the distractions and with all the noise, with all the beeps and the buzzes of our culture today, you realize unless you are diligently keeping him at the center, it is really easy to start to drift. So as Moses would say, would, would, you, would you let God, would you let him be the very center and the focal point of your life? So would you bind it on your forehead? Would you put it up on your arm? Would you, would you write it upon your doorpost? Would you, just, would you plaster it all over the place so that everything in your life just reminds, reminds you, oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. And you do love Jesus. I get that. But for some reason, it's so easy to, to forget. That whole idea of keeping it in the front of your mind and on, on, your, on your hand or on your, on your arm you realize that that becomes a language that's used throughout Scripture. It's really interesting. In Revelation 22, uh -oh. in Revelation 22, verse 4, there's this idea that's, that's found that John is picking up with, and, he, and he's coming back and he's using the idea of the Shema. And, and listen to what John says. He says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, I understand it's, it's in times language and all, all that kind of stuff. Don't get freaked out about all that stuff. But isn't it interesting that, that there's this idea that God's name, which is more than just a name, we're talking about his character and his nature and it's who he is, is going to be written upon their foreheads. Well, what kind of language is that? It's Shema language. 
It's a language to say that it's going to be at the very front of your mind. It's going to be in your eyesight. It's going to be in your vision. It's going to be your focus. And whether it's literally written on the foreheads, I don't, I have no idea. But the emphasis is that it's always before you. Wouldn't it be neat to have him always before you? That no matter where you looked, you were seen through the glasses called God Almighty? That's the idea. In fact, John actually gives us the opposite in the book of Revelation. Uh, when you get into Revelation chapter 13, John is talking about the beast. And he says, here are these people who have given themselves over unto the beast, and they have become beasts. They have become not who they were. And, and listen to the language that, that John uses. He says, and he, the beast, causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free and the slave, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. Now, I understand you've heard this before, and it often causes great trepidation and, you know, what, it, what is it going to be? And, but get, get the concept. It's using Shema language. That, that just as we are to write God's name and keep him at the forefront of our focus and on our might, our, our actions, what, that which we use our hands for, you realize that John says that here is the beast, and he is causing those who have come in allegiance to him to keep him as their focus and as the center of their action. So John gives you two choices. You're either going to give yourself in totality to Christ, or you will give yourself unto something else. And it will be the very center of your focus, and it will be the very center of your actions. That's small language. And so when you look at the Shema, Again, the whole emphasis of the Shema, the, this prayer, is that, that God himself, the fact that you are to love God with everything, is the very, the very center of who you are. Not just in what you see, not just in your vision, but also in your actions. And by the way, if you did that, if you kept God at the very center of your life, do you know what we'd have to call you? I, I think we'd have to call you a Christian. Because that's how they live. Uh, Jesus was asked a lot about the greatest commandment. He says, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, and Jesus, how would you summarize the law? Uh, the rabbis of that day would often get asked the question of like, well, you know, there's all these laws and there's all these oral traditions of the law. So what is the most important? If we're going to give our time to something, what do we give our focus and our time to? And so it's really fascinating that when you look at Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is being asked a very key question. And listen to this. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which I'm sure they were really excited about. It's like finally, you know, Jesus got the Sadducees to be quiet. The Pharisees gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. And he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is a great question for us, isn't it? In other words, what, out of all, of all of the scripture, what is the great commandment? What, what should we put our attention and our focus to? And Jesus said, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says, if you were to take the whole law and the prophets, speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament, and you were to summarize the Old Testament, what would you discover? The Shema. 
that you are to love God with everything. Jesus says, hey, that is the fulfillment and the totality of everything you see in the Old Testament. Do you know what God was doing all throughout Genesis through Malachi? Oh, God had one purpose and one plan. And it's summarized in the Shema. A very similar story is told in Mark chapter 12. Uh, in Mark chapter 12, the, the scenario scenarios slightly shifted, but it's, it's the same concept. It says, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well. And he asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is the Shema. <laughs> and he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. It's interesting Jesus adds to the Shema. And so Mark records that Jesus added, so it's in, in the original, right, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And here Jesus adds the mind. And you got to ask the question, why? And we'll get into this as, as we talk about the heart. But in the original Hebrew culture, the mind was included in the heart. And now we live in a very Roman Greek-influenced culture where the mind is the very centerpiece of everything. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus, because of the cultural influence, says, just so you don't forget, just so you don't think I'm leaving something important out, I'm including one more in the list, which was already included in the list, but he's emphasizing it. We'll get to it. Uh, but he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, well done, you are correct. Could you imagine saying that to Jesus? Right, teacher, you have truly stated, and then he requotes the thing, that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Uh, Luke has a very similar statement, but it seems like it's an entirely different scenario. It seems like it was kind of another uh, situation. In other words, the Matthew and the Mark seems like it was the same, same time period in the, life of his, or in the life of Jesus, but Luke records a slightly different scenario, and it just seems like this is probably a question that Jesus was asked several times. Luke records it in this way. He says that a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so the man answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But... Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes in to tell the story about the Good Samaritan. So do you hear that this isn't just an Old Testament idea, that Jesus says that this is the very heart and the very center of the Word of God, that you are to love God with everything. <clears throat> in fact, I'm, I'm just, I just want to give you one example, but you hear echoes of this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, for example, in John chapter 14, Verse 21, listen to what John says, and you'll start to hear an echo of the Shema in the language. It's, it's not quoting the Shema. You hear an echo of the Shema. In John 14, Jesus says, He who has my commandments 
and keeps him is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose or I will reveal myself to him. And it's interesting, when you, when you begin to look for the Shema throughout the New Testament, or even the Old Testament, you, you begin to hear echoes all throughout Scripture. In fact, just in the book of Deuteronomy, you hear this over and over, this language of love the Lord your God, 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 with everything, with everything, with everything. And there are these echoes all throughout Scripture saying, this is really, really important. Now, what's really interesting about this idea of the Shema is that it demands a holistic response. And I really want to flesh that out in this idea of the word Shema. Because when we look at the whole concept of the Shema, it doesn't just let you be passive. The Shema demands that you think about it and you reflect upon it and you feel and you act accordingly. There, there's this idea that you can't just listen passively, but the reality is that it demands a response from your life. In other words, you are not truly Shema'in if you aren't being changed. So let's talk about, oh, let me, let me give you two quick quotes. Uh, I found these, I just thought these were delightful. Uh, one scholar said this, the Shema has functioned both as a Jewish pledge of allegiance and as a hymn of praise. In other words, uh, just, just as you well know a lot of statements in, in, in Christendom, uh, like a John 3.16, this would be like their John 3.16. That this was a declaration of an allegiance to their God. But this was also a, a declaration of praise and worship. That this was a, whoa, do you know who our God is? Our God is one, and I'm going to love him with everything. And it was a prayer of declaration every single day. And then listen to this. I think this is such a great statement about the Shema. They are simple words with the capacity to reshape the course of an entire life. That's a great statement. That they are just simple words, but they have the potential to reshape the course of your entire life. And again, as we begin to walk through the, the depth of what, it actually, what does it actually mean to love God with everything, I, I want you to realize that this has the potential of radically changing your life. So let's, let's dive in and talk about this idea of the Shema. The, the word Shema means to listen or to hear. Uh, in fact, in, in my English translation, verse 4 starts with, Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. And so you can hear the word Shema and go, okay, well, it has this idea of sound and listening. And in fact, the word itself is connected to the idea of your ear. And a good example of this is Proverbs 20, verse 12 where it says the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. So the shema'in ear, the ear that shema's, it's the one that hears and listens, is what the verse says. So again, the idea goes back to this idea, it's connected to your ear, it's that which you hear and listen. But there's a range of meanings, there's, there's some nuances in this idea of the shema. Now, just like English words, English words have a range of meaning. Does that make sense? In other words, one word can have different layers of understanding. Uh, for example, green, hypothetically, right? The word green has a variety of meanings depending on the context in which it is used. So it could be a color or it could be the fact that you're a newbie or environmental or wealthy or whatever. There's a range of meanings with this idea of, oh, green. And the th same thing's true about biblical words. 
And so though there is this idea of like hearing, like literally listening and hearing a sound, oh, I heard that over there. Though that's there, there's a whole bunch more depth of meaning in this thing. Uh, just to even listen, there's this idea of that in Daniel 3.5 where they're talking about the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built and it says that at the moment that you shema, the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all the other kinds of music, that you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So there's this idea of like, oh, when you hear that sound, and you're like, oh, I heard it. Over there, I heard it. I heard it. But it's interesting, even this passage, I had, a, I had a really hard time even finding one example of just hearing a noise. Because though that there's that concept apart in the, or there's that concept in the Shema, that word Shema, it's more than just hearing a sound. Oh, I heard a bird twerp. Tweet, whatever they do. Right? <laughs> chirp. Chirp. Well, let's, let's say they chirp. Right? I, I, oh, I heard that out there. That is this idea of Shema, but Biblically, the Shema has so much more depth of meaning. Perhaps a better way of understanding the idea of Shema is that which we pay attention to. Uh, for example, your, your, your parent probably has never done this, but, but once in a while, my mom would say stuff like, Are you listening to me? And I could go, Yes, I heard everything. And she's like, You're not listening. I'm like, No, I heard that. She's like, No, you're not. I'm like, no, I, I, sound waves came into my ear. They came, I heard it. And she's like, but you're not listening. And there's a difference. Well, what, what am I not doing? I'm not paying attention. I'm actually not hearing. And so there's this idea of the Shema, the, the word Shema, which is you pay close attention to. You focus on something. Uh, for, for example, in Genesis chapter 29, I, this is hilarious to me. Jacob loves Rachel. And so Rachel's sister, Leah, feels a little rejected and ignored. And so it says that Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has shemad that I am unloved, therefore he has given me this son also. And therefore he named the son Simeon. Or literally it's Shimon, which means to listen. So she says, the Lord has heard that I am unloved. Yeah, he focused, he paid attention, and he heard, he noticed that I was unloved. Poor gal. Right? Jacob, Jacob my husband, loves my sister Rachel, that God has heard the fact that he doesn't love me. Oh, I now have a son. What am I going to call him? To hear. To hearken. Why? Because God heard. So that's, that's that idea. Or in 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, it's that whole scene. And it says that he was talking with him. David is talking, I think he's to his brothers. And behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke the same words. And David heard, shmod them. Oh, so you mean like David was focused over here and he just heard some over there. No, he paid attention to. He focused and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Right? There's this idea of the Shema of giving attention and focus and you're turning your gaze upon. And in other words, it demands a response. Or in Proverbs 1.8, it says, Shema, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. 
In other words, don't just listen to it. Listen to it. Take it in. Shma it. Understand it. Focus on it. Pay attention is the idea. And then the other layer, if you will, of this idea of Shema is not just to focus, not just to respond, and not just to like, oh, I heard that, but it's this idea of to obey. That I, it forces a response in my life. In fact, one of the ways the word Shema is actually translated is to obey. Uh, the word it shows up, I think, 1,100, a little over 1,100 times in the Old Testament. And I think it's two or three hundred times the word is translated in most English translations, obey. Uh, for example, in Psalm 27, 7, it says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. Which is a little awkward because it's a prayer. But what, we're, what the prayer basically is, God, will you respond? God, will you, will you interact? Would you do something because of this plea? In other words, God, don't just listen to me groan. Don't just listen to my plea. Lord, do something. So it's this idea of responding. Or in Exodus chapter 19, God is speaking, and he actually uses the word shema twice for emphasis. He says, now then, if you will, shema, shema. So if you will indeed obey, if you will really listen, if you will actually come and respond to my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So God says, look, I have made a covenant with you. Now you must shma shma. In other words, not just listen, not just, oh, I should, I should probably pay attention to that. God says you need to obey the covenant. You need to come under the authority of. You, you need to actually respond and do something with this covenant. Uh, in Exodus chapter 5, this is a great negative example. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, uh, God said, let my people go. And this is what Pharaoh says. He goes, who is Yahweh that I should shema his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. He goes, I ain't listening. Meaning what? I will not obey. I refuse. I will not come under. I will not listen to this. Here's really the question when it comes to the Shema. Do you have ears to hear? To connect to this, this whole idea of idolatry, one of the ways that idols are portrayed, or those who worship idols, is that they have no ears to hear. That when you don't have an ear to hear, when, you, when you're unable to Shema, it actually puts you in this very dangerous category, biblically. Uh, in Isaiah 42, oh, so let me say this. So idol worship is often connected to being blind and deaf. So when I worship an idol, idols are blind and deaf. Therefore, I, the worshiper of idols, become blind and deaf. So in Isaiah 42, listen, listen to what God is saying through Isaiah. He says, they will be turned back and be utterly put to shame, those who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Shema, you deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as a servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. You have ears open, but you do not shema. He says, look, you're, you're worshiping all these idols, 
and you become dumb. Because now, even though you have eyes, you cannot see. You have ears, but you cannot schmaw. That in the worship of idols, you've actually grown deaf and dumb. And you actually have no way to respond. And so it's interesting, and this is just one example, but there's a whole plethora of this idea that all throughout the Old Testament, when you give yourself over to idols, when you give yourself over, now again, in that day, they were statues, and they had ears, and they had eyes, but they could not literally see nor hear. And God says that same way that you take this piece of wood or a piece of stone and turn it into this lifeless God that you've given yourself over to, so too you have taken on their blindness and you've taken on their deafness. And no longer can you shema or see. If we don't shema, do you realize it is like if we have given ourselves over to the world? That we, we are not listening, we're not, and it's not just hearing, it's the whole idea of coming under the authority of. And you are called to Shema. Jeremiah 5.21 says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, you who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not Shema. He says, I'm trying to tell you something, but you're not paying attention. You, you have become deaf. Which is actually is a wonderful question for us in our modern day. Have we grown blind and deaf? Do we actually shema? Do we listen? Do we hear? In Revelation chapter 9, there's this idea of idolatry. And listen again how this idea shows up in the end. It says that the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of their, the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Again, it's using that Old Testament language for idolatry where here is these people who have given themselves over to idols. And whether it's made out of gold and silver or brass or stone or wood or whether it's just the worship of demons or whether it's just the worship of the world and the culture, do you realize that it produces eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear? I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus so often said things like this. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. He's saying you're not giving yourselves over to idolatry. That you are actually, you've given your ears over to God. So could you imagine here's Jesus and he's talking to the people and of course, he's likely speaking in, uh, in Aramaic. But when he would say this idea of, hey, you have ears to hear, they would immediately go back to the Shema. Because this is the thing that they would quote every morning and every evening and every, and every Sabbath. That this was constantly upon their mind. And he says, look, God has done something in your life and he is, he is allowing you to hear. So will you hear? A lot of times connected to the parables, Jesus would say stuff if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning what? Not everyone will. Not everyone is going to listen. Not everyone's going to understand. Not everyone is going to pay attention and come under the authority and obey. And again, hearing is not just, well, did you hear the words of Jesus? Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who have heard the words of mine and have done them is like the man who builds their house upon the rock. But if you hear the words and don't do them, 
you're like the man who builds on the sand. See, it's not listening. It's this idea of obedience and response that comes out of listening. That when you talk about this idea of Shema, Shema is not just, well, did you hear some words? Shema is the idea of, I've heard, but the other side of the coin is, I have gone and obeyed. Uh, In the book of Revelation, Jesus says this over and over, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So when Jesus is writing to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, to every church he says, to him who has an ear, let him hear, let him shema, what the Spirit is saying. In other words, will you come under? Would you not just listen, but will you actually obey that which the Lord is saying? Uh, James chapter 1, I think, says this really well. James is, is, again, giving an echo of this idea of the Shema because hearing is not just hearing. Hearing has this idea of response and obedience associated with it. But listen to what James says. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and doesn't do it, he is like a man who looks at his natural face, <clears throat> face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. James says you can't just listen to the word of God. You must obey it. Which is what the Shema implies. So come back into Deuteronomy. Moses says, Shema Israel. Listen. But don't just listen in the sense of hear it. Listen in the sense of you need to respond and you need to obey. Again, the Shema demands a holistic response. It demands that you respond with how you think and with how you reason and with how you feel and with how you act. The Shema demands that you give God everything. To hear and to listen doesn't just mean to hear. It means to obey it. Can I ask you, are you doing that with this? Have you actually heard the word of the Lord? Well, yes, I've I've memorized a whole bunch of verses. Yeah, I grew up in Sunday school. Good for you. But have you shmod it? Have you not just heard it? Have you responded? Have you not just heard it? Are you willing to obey it? God is tapping us all on our forehead saying, will you shma my word? Will you shma me? Will you listen to me? Will, Will you... Will you come under my authority? Would you obey me? And as Moses continues, he says, well, what is this Shema that I'm supposed to do? Well, it's the fact that God is our God. He is one, and we're to love him with everything. And so in the next couple of sessions together, next time I want to look at this idea, what does it mean for God to say that he is God alone? And then as we continue, what does it mean to actually love him with everything? Because that really is the question upon all of our hearts. Do you actually love God with everything? But if you're going to do that, you must shema. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to just hear your word. Lord, we want to obey. Lord, we don't want to just listen to some great teaching. Lord, we want to know you and in the process of getting to know you we want to hear you in the process of hearing you we want to respond and actually come into obedience with that word 
So, Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Lord, don't let us be like the idols of old that were so blind and so deaf that they, they, could not, they couldn't do anything. And, Lord, when I give myself over to idols, when I give myself over to this world, I become blind and deaf. And yet you have called us to have ears that hear and eyes that see. Lord, I pray for any of us who may be blinded, those of us who may be deaf, Lord, would you unstop our ears and open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things of who you are. Lord, let us not just nod along and come into agreement, but Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves under your authority and that we would truly shema your word. Shema you. Lord, thank you that you've given us ears that actually hear. And Lord, I pray that as we continually come to your word in the days to come, that that we would have ears to hear. And so, Lord, we just give ourselves afresh to you this morning. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.